Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day team, welcome again to Profitable Farmer. I feel like there is so much going on in the global economy at the moment and I think I feel like perhaps the fundamentals haven't changed, but our reality as farmers have changed significantly as we roll into this season, perhaps characterised by inflation, no doubt, but increasing interest rates, perhaps softening commodity prices, and certainly respectful that for many in northern New South Wales and in other areas, we're coming into drier seasons. So, so quickly we move from a low interest rate, low inflation environment to one that is very different from that. And I think that has us asking different questions and really looking intently as business owners at a new reality and a new environment. And so with all that, I thought it perfect timing to ask our investment expert and um, yeah, off-farm wealth creation specialist, Terry Tran, to come back and give us his, I guess, current insight on what's actually going on around the world, um, looking into perhaps what's happening in our major trading nations and helping us cut through all the BS perhaps that we see in the media and get a really good, solid understanding of what's actually going on out there. Terry, it's always wonderful to have you part of Profitable Pharma and, um, yeah, looking forward for you to actually help us understand what's really happening at the moment. How are you? Very well, thank you, Jeremy. And always a pleasure to be here as well and share the, the message of, of what's really going on around the world. Yeah, it's great to have you again, Terry. Now, I understand you're just back from a Harvey Bay holiday. We talked in our last podcast about the importance of creating wealth so that we can tick off bucket list items. Yeah. Tell us about whale watching at Harvey Bay, Terry. Yeah, definitely. If you've ever never done one, it's to add that onto the bucket list because I've always wanted to obviously whale watch but all a lot of the because I, I live in sydney but a lot of the whale watch cruises down here and even along our coast it's all quite far away when you know you go on a cruise for a couple hundred dollars and they say oh there's a whale and it's usually a half kilometer away and you've got to use your binoculars to see them type thing but then this one i had i didn't really have any expectations like okay this is another one one of those potentially but harvey bay is the Sort of the whale capital of the of Australia, I reckon, because they come into that area to actually breed while they're on their way to Antarctica, apparently. So they do hang around for a number of months to breed, um, teach their, I guess, teach their um the young of what to do. And we we were lucky enough to get on a catamaran and spend the day out in the sea, not expecting too much, but literally a, a family pod came by our catamaran. We switched off the engines, of course. And then the baby uh, calf actually hung around for about an hour and just circling our boat, going under our boat, and over time just building trust. Um, so as long as we remain quiet, don't get too excited. It built trust in enough that they were back floating and just sharing, you know, showing off their the belly. So and that showed that they they trusted us. Um, and of course, you know, breathing and blowing, uh, blowing a, a mist that gave us a lot of whale spray along the way as well. And then about an hour later, it actually left. And we thought that, oh, it's it's going. But ended up calling the parents back to actually have fun with it as well. And then we ended up having now three whales circling our boat for another, literally the entire afternoon. 
So that was an amazing experience, just seeing them that close uh, on the boat. And literally, we could like, technically get in the water if we could, we, uh, not allowed to, of course, on that boat. But then the next day, I did I did do another whale. This, this time was actually whale swimming. So going into the water, um, you know, staying quiet, knowing where the whales are, and then letting them come to us. And lucky enough, another one, uh, actually two, came by and literally swam past past us. Um, and you know, it was literally what, two, between two and three meters away from us. So it was almost like a, a mini submarine coming past us. Uh, so that that big, I think they were forty ton beasts. So they're not small, but um, yeah, good, very good fun. Aren't they amazing animals? And what a memorable experience to get so close to them. Oh, definitely. And you can see how calm and collected they are as well, which I think as humans, we should be as well, especially while we're you know, running our businesses and also investing and just being almost like a whale, you know, just taking the time that you need and doing what you actually naturally, yeah, do, literally. Yeah, it's a good point, Terry, that they um, that we we can learn a lot from these animals perhaps around their composure and their presence and, and you know, just how to how to go about navigating their realities and our realities. Yes, but definitely. Well, well done on you know, another bucket list item achieved. It's brilliant. No, thank you. Uh, and yeah, and I def- definitely highly recommend anyone who you know who has never done it to put on their bucket list and uh, yeah, go for that experience as well. And it's literally in our backyard, so it's not that far off as well. Because I know I, I do understand quite a lot of farmers are also from Queensland, so it is in your backyard. Experience it. Absolutely. So, Terry, shifting our attention to the things that have changed in our economy perhaps since we last spoke, um, what's your read on what's happening for Australian farmers but but around the world and, and you know, specifically with attention to those major trading partners? You know, there's definitely an issue, a key issue that I'm seeing because in the end, uh, as you know, Jeremy, there's um, a, a number of what I call recessionary type indicators that we are always always watching on a quarterly basis. And those indicators at the moment, this point in time, every quarter I'm monitoring those indicators for our major trading partners. So because in the end, there are really three, I would say three global areas or countries uh, that control what happens around the world. Uh, one of them, of course, is Europe. The other one is United States, of course. And then the other one is uh, one of our major trading partners, China as well. So whatever happens in these three economies does affect the, the entire world and 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 we follow through. And primarily also whatever happens in the United States, i.e. inflation, interest rates, we always follow suit. We are always lagging behind them usually by a number about a quarter. So whatever it happens over there. So recently, in actual fact, over the past week, the Fed has just increased their interest rate again for the 11th time. And now it's the, uh, surprisingly, which I, I can't believe, it's been 22 years since the rate is at this at these type of levels. Uh, so they raised it again to uh, their rate at 5.5%, uh, the 11th consecutive one. And our RBA always, over time, will also increase our rates at the same time to sort of catch up or go towards them. And all the other central banks around the world, Europe, et cetera, will also do the same thing. The main reason being is that we have to follow simply because if we don't follow, interest rates always drags money across to their economies. So if the economies or the, our, the other trading partners don't also increase their interest rates, uh, the for example, the Aussie dollar will drop. So the US dollar, which has been you know quite strong of late, and uh, immediately once the, the, the Fed increased their interest rates, our our, our Aussie dollar dropped against the US as well. So we never want that 
we always want to have a, a good currency rate, but not too, uh, not too, too much of a, of a of a massive gap or difference. So we always follow suit to ensure that there's always this balance as well. Uh, so yeah, so in terms of taming inflation, I see that they they have done their, it has done its thing, and I mean what a, what a journey it's been in like less than eighteen months where it's gone from literally almost zero percent to now five and a half percent, and that's just the central bank rates. But of course, the banks need to make money, so they add their margin on top, and hence why a lot of uh, farmers and even the individuals who have a lot of debt, they are probably struggling. And you can see mortgage stress or debt-related stress uh, that is occurring right now. And we are not, we're definitely not done in terms of interest rate rises. So what's your read on the US economy? That's obviously got to have a, a fairly significant impact um, yeah. on households and on their economy. What's your read on how they're going to navigate their next few years? Yeah, the US economy surprisingly has been quite strong and, and it's really shown by the share market as well. But it is important that one doesn't just look at the share market and go, oh, wow, it's it's great because the share market's going well, the, everything else is going well. Uh, there are certain pockets that have done very well and what they have done is drag the entire, what they call the, the stock market index up. But the other industries or sectors that haven't actually done that well Um uh, it's in the, when you look at it individually. So the US economy at the moment is actually struggling as well. The only thing that is, I think, as the saving grace, not only in the United States, but also in Australia, is our unemployment rate, which is still remaining quite, uh, still quite low. I think it's because of uh, post-COVID and that's still flowing through without the, um, you know, the amount of Im slowdown of immigration, et cetera, plus not many, as many backpackers uh, coming into the country. So in terms of, you know, people, uh, a lot of businesses wanting to find, you know, you know, find employees, they are not getting them. So they're taking whoever that is available. So our unemployment is still quite low at this point in time, hence why at least people have jobs. But given enough time, as interest rates start rise, uh, go even further to tame down inflation further, because our inflation has actually, funny enough, in Australia, our inflation rate in the last quarter, as it stands right now, it's still 6%. US has done their thing because they've really racked up their interest rates to, you know, to five and a half central bank rate at five and a half percent. And they their inflation was at, you know, a quarter ago was nine percent, has actually dropped down to three percent in literally one quarter. So it's dropped down quite a lot. Whereas Australia, we've been quite reluctant to increase our interest rate too fast, which in a way is, it's the right thing to do because you would create, you know, mortgage stress. But our inflation rate is still at six percent. So still sort of tr double to triple what our RBA really wants, because we we generally, the central banks want that 2 or 3%. And by slowly and over time increasing interest rates, what happens is you'll find that a lot of businesses will then, who do have a lot of debt, and I do understand some of the farmers do have quite a fair bit of debt still, you know, for the land, machinery, et cetera. They, businesses end up struggling with the ones with too much debt end up struggling. And what do they do? They, of course, start having to cut costs. And therefore, one of the costs is also employees. And therefore, Eventually, unemployment rates will also slowly increase as well. So everything has its flow-on effect, no matter what you know what we talk about. Uh, so at the moment, it looks okay from on the surface, but given enough time, another quarter or two, uh, things will will eventually struggle in the United States and it, especially even Europe. The the if you look at the the um, which we can talk about the six factors that you know potentially create recessions, uh, Europe literally is failing on five of them, and uh, from just seeing that, it literally is showing that Europe is slowly going to put potentially a, a mild recession quite soon. And of course, Europe being a, one of the major trading partners around the world, they will drag down 
the rest as well over time. So just, yes. be- just before we get to Europe, Terry, um, I understand Fitch has downgraded the US credit rating from AAA to yep. AA. Yes. Two questions. Um, is that a concern? And has the USA learned from the GFC? And is their fiscal policy stronger now than it was going into a potential recession? So in terms of Fitch, um, I'll answer in a, in a couple of ways. In terms of Fitch downgrading from AAA to AA+, one notch, it's not too bad because Fitch is just one of the three global major you know, um, rating agencies. There's the other one, which is Moody's and, and S&P or Standard & Poor's. The last time that a ratings agency, Standard & Poor's, downgraded United States was back in 2011, and that was over a decade ago. And that, because that was a very sort of the very first time that it happened, uh, there was panic and mayhem in the financial markets across the globe, and everything has just dropped by 10 to 15% overnight, literally. This time, Fitch done their downgrade, and it hasn't affected as much because uh, I think investors have seen in the past what has ha- what had happened, and then they generally want to take advantage of those, and which I did back then too. I saw that, and I took advantage back then over a decade ago. What may be the straw that may break the back of the camel is if Fitch does it once, that's fine. But if let's say Moody's and S&P also follow along, at the moment, they haven't done too much. They've just left it as is. But if they also see problems and they also do their thing and down, downgrade it as well, now all three of the global rating agencies do it, then that will definitely uh, create a bit of mayhem in, in the financial markets and they'll drag everything down as well. So at this point in time, it's still okay. Uh, not much to talk about really. Um, and really the reason why they did that is because of the dysfunction of the United States, really. When you look at our our own political system, yes, we sort of don't agree with each other, you know, Labour and Liberal, but we're nowhere near as bad as the United States, where they have this so-called debt ceiling that, uh, because the United States, obviously, to grow their economy, they are the, the central, in a way, the central global currency. They, they are borrowing quite a fair bit of money from the world to fund whatever they're doing, infrastructure, etc. And whenever they... they um, they bicker over what they call the debt ceiling, uh, sort of a, a layer and go, okay, we're now reaching our almost, It's an anomaly I'd like to use is almost like a, a credit card limit. So every single quarter they come together and they go, okay, we need to increase our credit card limit. And they get so close at this point in time that that credit card limit is getting, it's getting potentially getting breached. And then they have to come together to agree what's the next credit card limit that we we want to get to again to borrow more money to continue funding our growth. And generally, a sane government should go, yep, do it way before it gets too close. But what the United States always does is push it to literally the last day where uh, it gets literally that close that they cannot pay government workers. And the last time it happened was in 2011 when they couldn't decide, they disagreed. And the entire the entire government departments all shut down. So people walked out of work because they were not going to get paid the next day, which was ridiculous. And uh, I think they have learned from the lesson from that that scenario. Hence why when they got close to it in June, I wasn't too concerned because they, you know, there's no government close to election that wants to do that and be blamed for it again, like they had in 2011. So they, of course, last minute they increased the credit card limit again and everything was okay. But in another quarter, they're going to have the same problem. So every single quarter is having the same thing, hence why Fitch is saying, you know, enough is enough. This is quite ridiculous. We just got to 
decrease our ratings for United States because we just don't think this is the right thing for a country of that size to keep on going. And now going to the GFC, Jeremy, in regards to, you know, have they learned from the lesson? Uh, yes, they have. And you could clearly see that in coronavirus. When the global economy shut down, you know, oh, I can't believe it's almost like almost three years ago now, is that when coronavirus happened, we could see everything shutting down and not only the financial markets, but everything just plummeted. And the US government, if they did not, why I say that they learned from the lesson from GFC is that if they did not do what they did and step up to the plate and create all these stimulus packages, and then that rolled over to the world world where all the other central banks, including RBA Australia, we saw the same thing. Uh, so we also released these stimulus packages as well. If that did not happen, then would have been a GFC number two. So they definitely did learn from the past lessons of um, you know 15 years ago of the, of the GFC. And then that that lifted the markets, lifted confidence, and everybody was okay again, so to speak. Yeah, so yes, they have learned. Good to hear. Thanks, Terry. So turning our attention now to Europe, you yes. say they're, they're in a tough spot and yes. looking toward a real return to recession. Would yes. you mind just giving us your view of that economy through the six key recession indicators that you yep. mentioned? Sure. So, Jeremy, if we recall the basically the six uh, indicators, I'll just quickly run through them so at least the everybody understands what they are first. So, these, despite what you hear in the news, you know, there's always an economist that has their view. They can be right, they can be wrong, but generally, I always find that they're actually more wrong than right. So, it's actually far better to understand what are the indicators and what are the criteria, so we as individuals can see on a quarterly basis what determines a recession or a financial market crisis. And it always happens, you know, year after year, uh, recession after recession, these are the ones and these are the criteria that seems to happen just from research. So the first one being interest rates. Whenever interest rates are, and I'm talking about the central bank rates, which of course our Aussie banks, US banks, they add at a, at a margin to make their money as well. So when central bank rates are above 5%, then that's one particular factor. Inflationary levels need to be uh, below 3%. And if they're above 3%, then that's another factor. The other thing too is corporate profit levels, because in the end, it's businesses that drive the economy. Without businesses, the economy fails because no one will have jobs. We want to see that these corporates and small businesses, they continually make money and they don't have flat or declining profit levels. So when we see that, that's an indicator as well. Then the fourth one, unemployment levels. At the moment, it seems to be okay because people are still looking for jobs, but unemployment levels, anything above 5% is a bad sign because if people don't have work, they can't spend. And then, of course, corporates and businesses start having to you know, cut costs and also cut employees. So that's number four. Then number five is overall GDP growth of the, the world, but also individually the, the countries themselves. So that needs to also be growing. So if it's flat or falling, also another indicator. That's the fifth one. And the final one, number six, is what they call the PMI or Purchasing Managers Index. That's broken up into two things, a services index and manufacturing index. So what that really measures is it asks services companies still being able to make money, produce the goods, and manufacturing, of course, being able to make money and produce the goods. So there's a PMI comp uh, composite um, reading as well, which combines both of those readings together. And that reading needs to be over 50. So these are literally the, the six major key components 
and the criteria. And why I say uh, Europe is falling into crisis is because the only one that it's passing at the moment is interest rates because if you recall, I said anything above 5%, the central bank at the stands is sitting on 4.25% interest rates. So it's definitely a, a you know one almost an, a percentage and a half lower than the United States. So that's the only key thing that's that's lower than that. But the issue though is I can't see that sustaining itself because the inflationary levels in Europe, it's still sitting at 5.3, way above the 3% mark. And in order to tame that, what does one need to do or central banks need to do? They need to increase interest rates to tame down the inflation and cut back confidence in terms of spending. So interest rates eventually is going to have to go up as well. Corporate profit levels are definitely declining across Europe. Unemployment levels above five, they are sitting at 6.4% at the moment. So another break um, you know, from the criteria. Then GDP growth in the European nations across the board, they're sitting at, at this point growing at 0.3%. And the forecast is it's going to stay flat for the entire year. So that's another indicator. And then finally, the PMI composite, we need it to be over 50. It's sitting at 49, uh, 48.9. So out of the, literally out of the six, five have failed. And the only one saving grace just looks like is interest rates, but I can't see that sustaining at 4.25 because of inflation anyway. So it's eventual that they'll probably increase and therefore it will fail on all six parts. What's your read on how Europe might perform over the next two or three years, um, you mentioned recession. Do you think yep. it's a long a long term thing as sort of that no, that combination of nations recovers from COVID? Yeah, I think Europe um, is part of the issue with Europe as well. Is uh, as we know, the, the Russian Ukraine war has been dragging on, so that's one of the other reasons why their their numbers are looking so bad as well. Because um, yeah, the confidence level within Europe itself is also declining because of that prolonged Russian-Ukraine war as well. So that's one the one of the reasons why, compared to say United States and Australia and China, that you know Europe is definitely out of all of them more of a basket case. Some people are saying that you know it's it's fine, things are looking rosy. It's definitely not. From last quarter, it's actually gone worse for sure. That's for, um, just from looking at the data. And I just see this as, I don't know whether it's going to be a, a prolonged major recession. I think it may be a mild one, but it's definitely going to be happening. I, I would say within the next, say by the end of the year, something's going to break eventually. And how long it, it, it goes, who knows? Um, I definitely don't have a crystal ball. We just look at the data on a consistent basis. But I would say that a, a mild recession will it, it, there's a much more high probability that a mild recession will definitely happen. And when that happens in Europe, that slowly drags down the world because Europe is also a major trading partner of China. And if they don't buy from China, China will also suffer, which China, by the way, is also suffering at this point in time as well right now, despite it being the growth engine of the world for the for the past three decades now. It is no longer the, the, the case. Uh, we thought that post-COVID, China will be up and running again because they had so many lockdowns, it wasn't funny. But... Um, the issue with China as well is that, uh, which a lot of people don't know, is that in the past, a lot of foreign, they relied on foreign capital because of um, everybody wants that, you know, began to serve over a billion people in, in one place and had cheap, much way cheaper labor, labor, smart, very smart labor as well because of um, uh, the the way, you know, their universities were run. And a lot of the the big companies like the Apples of the world all went into China to produce things uh, because cheaper labor, smart people everything's all in one spot plus at the same time after they produce it they've got enough they've got also a massive population size to also serve you know to increase their profit as well 
But as we know, um, with all these tensions with US and China, now um, with all the bickering between you know the two countries as well, political political reasons for sure, uh, the Chinese economy ha- is suffering because going back to the point where major corporations are no longer investing into China. So capital inflows are not going into China, which means that, what does that mean? It means that uh, the companies themselves aren't able to access cheaper capital capital from America, so they can't grow. And primary because I think it's just foreign companies being scared of a communist country, how things can just flip like a switch, which they did because a lot of the Chinese companies, they were doing very well. Foreign companies were doing very well within the country, but all of a sudden, with a with one decision from central government, um, no, of course, no debate required in China. Comes from the one, really, the one man. Uh, whatever he decides goes. Being a communist country, and all of a sudden, by doing so, a lot of the foreign foreign country, uh, companies are now scared of investing more capital. In actual fact, they're actually withdrawing from China and trying to find other places to go to manufacture their goods. So they're diversifying the key risk because of the other issue of you know China Taiwan. 2027 is sort of the deadline, potentially a hard invasion like Ukraine. Um, fingers crossed it doesn't happen because that will be a disaster, how I see things. And they're di- slowly diversifying away from China into the countries like um, like India and Vietnam. So, And it's easy to see. Whenever you buy something these days, even my Samsung phone, I just can't believe. When I flip over the back, in the past, it used to be made in China. Now, even my Nike shoes made in Vietnam. Unbelievable. In a short amount of time, they've gone from literally China over to Vietnam and my, my own home country, which I, I went away from all those years ago. And these two countries I see as the major next, I guess, destinations for investment opportunities. Uh, and if we, you know, one doesn't understand the the companies themselves, which I would say, you know, it is risky to go into those countries and, and try to buy those those companies because we're not aware of what companies are actually great. Yes, they have numbers uh, that we look at, like, like the Australian companies, but one would probably do better by just buying, I guess, index funds of those countries and treat it more, forget about trading, treat it more like a longer-term investment and just opportunistically buy into those countries through, through funds, index funds, literally, low-cost index funds. Yeah, so um, yeah, so I hope, hope that makes sense, Jeremy, in a long-winded way. Not at all. Um Great insights. Thanks, Terry. So how does China stack up against those same um, recession risk ratings? Yeah, no, China is definitely having a problem. So if I look at Chinese figures, and in terms of the only, in a way, sometimes Chinese figures I don't trust as well because they they tend to, um, uh, hence why I don't invest directly into Chinese companies. I would rather have them, if they have dual listed, I'll buy the Chinese stocks through the United States because at least those companies have proper audited financial statements. But with the Chinese economy, it's, one, it's sometimes hard to tell because what is real and what is fake, uh, it's just not as open. But in terms of those criteria, the 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 thing with China, like Europe, interest rates are, are sitting at 3.5% as it stands. The reason being is they can't, they're not increasing simply because the inflation in levels, unlike the rest of the globe, because of COVID lockdowns that they've had extended periods, their inflation actually is sitting at 0%. So they have had not no inflation versus the Western world at all because of the closure of the economy for a number of years since COVID. So what that means is that their corporate profit levels, of course, have, have that means that if it's dropped, they can't increase their prices. Unemployment levels has definitely gone a little bit ballistic. It's gone uh, now uh, above 5%. It's at 52 
Whether it's actually 5.2, I don't know. I think it's actually going to be, I believe the true figure is probably a lot higher than that because there's um, a number that's come out with their, uh, the young people aged between 16 to 24. The amount of, I mean, they've got, you know, almost one and a half billion people and the amount of graduates come out from higher, you know, from higher studies, university studies, uh, pretty much 21% can't find work. So you can imagine one in five with masters, even masters degree can't find work and they are, I watched a video recently and they are literally, and, and it was an insightful video because it showed them being interviewed and they were uh, saying that the cost of living, their apartments, which used to be very cheap in, in the major cities like Beijing and um, and Shanghai, they cost, I think the average, uh, the average, uh, obviously their salary is lower than Australia, but the average number of years to buy a simple one bedroom apartment is 83 years to pay it off. 83 years. That's ridiculous. I mean, we have 30, you know, 25, 30 year loans. They've got 83 years to pay it off. So it just shows how, how struggling uh, their young are at the moment. And people with master's degree, they were actually interviewed and they were doing cleaning jobs, Jeremy. They were cleaners after a master's degree in IT and, and banking and finance. And also doing, um, Basically, they don't have Uber Eats, but they're doing the, the Chinese version. They're literally delivering food and and driving up, drive, doing, delivering you know, customers who using their cars, rented cars too, by the way, because I can't afford one to actually deliver customers as well. You know, um, yeah, people who who, who need uh, acting as taxi drivers, literally as well. So I can just see that that failing there too. And then in terms of GDP, they're definitely flatlining. And um, yeah, so the Chinese economy is definitely struggling. And hence why commodity prices are probably going to struggle over the coming period as well. Yeah, we're certainly seeing a softening of some key commodities in Australia. What's your read on that outlook for America or the Americas for Europe and China? Mm. What does that mean for, and you know, what are your headlines, if you like, for this quarter for us, Terry, given that outlook? Yeah, I think the, the the overall outlook is definitely being more cautious. It's it's not the time to expand. So if you were thinking about expansion um, over the next coming years, I'd say a year, probably pull back a little bit. And in terms of, I think it's, in a way, I see it the flip side, the opportunity to. So if you're looking at potentially expanding, I actually think that if you were looking at saying buying you know, next door neighbor and another farm, uh, hold back because you'll probably get cheaper prices. Interest rates will rise again. And whenever that rises, it's it, pull, it acts as a gravity to so-called riskier assets, which is regarded as property and stocks. Of course, as stocks, we we try to reduce risk as much as we can by by our criteria. But technically, as a as a overall, stocks and property are regarded as much riskier assets than say cash in the bank or uh, U.S. Treasuries or term deposits, for example. So, expansion wise, hold back. You'll get definitely cheaper prices, and the opportunity is if you are patient enough, uh, you'll be surprised that the the level of negotiation you can have down the track in six to 12 months versus uh, even now. And, and I'm already seeing quite um, a number of my friends are uh, are in real estate and I, and I talk to them and they say, you know, it's definitely slowing down because when they used to have open houses, they used, used to at least have 10 people coming through minimum. Now they're lucky to have one. That's a difference. So the interest rates are biting because the the buyers themselves, either if they've got big loans, especially I think the millennials who always thought they've been born in a period where they thought interest rates at two or three percent is normal. That is not normal. I used to work in the bank and they were when I was a banker, they were seven to eight percent per annum. Even now it's still quite cheap. It's normal now. 
And uh, going back to my mum, I remember when she bought her house back in the 80s, it was at 17 18%. So our rates have not are not normal at two or three percent. So these guys who have bought, you know, borrowed a million bucks, a million dollars plus to buy their their dream apartment or dream home, they are struggling. And then the ones who are now wanting to buy something like that, they can't go to a bank and they can't afford it because the bank's criteria is actually also um, also um, increased because of the affordability criteria as well. So yeah. Those other metrics that you mentioned, corporate profit levels and unemployment levels and GDP growth, would you mind speaking to those for Australia? Uh, sure. So in terms of Australia, I'm just pulling up the figures for Australia. So let's quickly run through the, the figures for Australia. Interest rates are at about, you know, obviously criteria above five. It's sitting at 4.1 RBA. I don't think that's sustainable. That's going to rise simply because our inflation rate is still sitting at 6%. So it's double to triple what we want. Our RBA always wants two to three percent. It's sitting at six at this point in time. Their forecast is that it's going to drop. I believe yes, it is going to drop, but it's still not going to. Uh, their one-year forecast is still going to be at four. Uh, they've said four point one percent, which I don't think you know one year is too far to forecast anyway. They always get it wrong, but we are still double at this point in time what we are. So that's a that's a definitely a failure there. Corporate profit levels currently across the country. Is sitting on 150 billion for the quarter, and their forecast for next quarter is going to drop by 10% down to 134 billion, and that's quite a significant drop for corporates and businesses. So that's another failure. So it's not even flat; it's definitely falling. Uh, unemployment, like I said, the only saving grace at 3.5% because a lot of service fact, uh, service industries are still finding hard to get proper good employees at this point in time, and I see that, and hence why that's probably the only saving grace at this point in time. But then when corporate profits levels fall, I can't see that being sustainable because their one-year forecast in a year's time is going to be 4.8%. So it's going to rise from 35 to 4.8%, close to the 5% mark on unemployment. Uh, GDP growth, flat at 0.2. And going next quarter to one year out, it's 0.1 and 0.3. So it's a very cautionary or another failure there too. And the big one, PMI composite, the Purchasing Managers Index, we want it to be above 50. It's sitting at uh, 48.8. So it's below that too. So that also fails. So Australia is actually failing on about three to five, uh, three out of uh, three to four out of the six at this point in time. So does that then suggest that a recession environment is something that we should expect into the near term? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. In the, I'd pre- probably say, uh, have, there's a high, it's a, nothing is always a definite, but there's a, a much higher probability that we, I think Australia is quite, in terms of where we are, I think we are definitely the lucky country. We things are still okay, but going out three to six months, I think there we when if Europe starts falling, US starts falling, we will get dragged down, and plus China, we will get dragged down behind it because we are such a small economy on a global scale that whatever happens there ends up happening here. Because if nothing, um, you know, being a, also a commodity-driven country, if they don't buy our products. What happens to our economy? It, 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 of course, slows down, and I think that's one of the key reasons why the corporate profit levels are dropping by ten percent in just one quarter. It's because the the countries like China are not buying our commodities as much, and hence why the, the price drop as well. So insightful, Terry. Thank you. So, what direction and guidance would you give to business owners and farm owners at this time, given? what we've we've just described 
Yeah, so patience, of course, is the one thing. But I think the other thing too is to start preparing for a downturn. So if your business is not geared towards um, surviving in a declining market, uh, we've had a gold, what I call a Goldilocks economy over the past few years with very low interest rates. That is not going to last, as you can clearly see from everything I've spoken about so far. So if we can somehow create, you know, prepare the business and really review and you know create benchmarks, which I believe, Jeremy, you teach in Farm Owners Academy very well. So definitely looking at the benchmarking, you know, your business, your farm, and ensuring that they pass the criteria that you've set. And then from there, then you'll have that peace of mind as well. And Jeremy, I actually would love to hear on your side uh, the, the benchmarks that you that you run the farmers through. Terry, I think the benchmarks that we applied to our clients' businesses are not dissimilar to those that you use to analyse the performance of the stocks that you invest in or recommend people invest in. Mm. Return on equity, return on assets managed, profitability, resilience, solvency, mm. um, and then looking at all our cost ratios to make sure that we're not um, running business models that are too um, cost-heavy. Mm. Um, the frame, though, that I would put to that, and I think this is relevant in this conversation, is that we encourage people to set up business models on their farms that can break even in a decile two year. So, you know, that's making a small loss or breaking even two years in 10, mm. but a business model that in these times can be resilient enough that we know we can make a reasonable profit eight years in 10. I think what we're seeing is a lot of farms, because of the optimism that has been out there, um, they've geared up, they've had a crack, they've made the most of these low interest rates environments. Mm. But there's that risk of having a business model that might break even in a decile five year, whereas yeah. in a decile five year, we've got to be making strong profits. Yeah. So and I think if we're heading into an environment that could look and smell a bit like a decile two or three year, I think there are some people that are feeling some alarm and concern because maybe their business models um, are not necessarily set up for that. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned the two year time frame because uh, Bill Gates from Microsoft, when he built his company, uh, I, I always remember this, that he built the company on this on that same foundation where he actually said, I want to have enough cash in Microsoft. And this is when he's, he was a startup back in the old days. And he had this mindset all the way to even to today, today, where they've got enough cash flow sitting there in the bank that will survive even if not one Microsoft product is sold around the planet, which of course is, is ridiculous. So they'll sell products. But uh, in that type of, you know, uh, very bad environment that even if they don't sell one product, they will still survive that two-year frame, time frame. And uh, funny enough, it sort of almost coincides with COVID because that was a sort of a two to three-year time frame as well, a very desolate environment too. So that benchmarking and that type of criteria, if you can have that, it will give you the peace of mind. So, yeah. I think I'm, that's a, a one that links beautifully back to that comment about our farm business models. Um, I think there's risk and there's risky. And I think... We need to be very careful being having a, a risky approach to our next few years, given what you're describing. I think we've got to take a patient and a cautious approach and, to your point, um, maybe slow down how bullish we're being about expansionary steps and those sorts of things. It's, it's great insight. And I think what's amazing about what you've shared today is there's a lot of hype and emotion around what's actually happening to be able to look at 
Australia and our other major trading nations through those six key um, recession rating criteria that you have. Just for me, I feel like there's a lot more control um, available when we look at our reality in that way. No, definitely. And, you know, people get caught up with their pants down with with a recession. Always, it's happened. But recessions and market crashes, I always say, don't happen overnight. The data provided will show you, clearly show you that something's wrong. And then it's far better to prepare for it and anticipate it. So when it happens, one, the business and the investments are prepared for it. Uh, In other words, having a lot of cash on hand, because then post-crash, we then take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, you know, if you're expanding, you get far better prices, negotiation power. And even on the investing side, with all that cash, that's when you make the most returns because you, you're 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 cash heavy and ready to now reinvest where people are now running scared because they got caught with their pants down. But whereas you're in that very fortunate position because you prepared for it and now taking advantage of the actual crash itself, which is awesome. So what are the opportunities that you're seeing and that you are getting ready for from an investment standpoint, Terry? Yeah, so we've been the same thing. We've been very cautious, uh, like the farmers. We've been now more cautious just from looking at the data on our own investing itself. So we are, we've been selling down, in fact, our own portfolio, sitting on about between 40 to 45% cash, which is it is quite high as well. And it's because I can foresee something is breaking, and therefore, I want to make sure that I'm very liquid to take advantage of the opportunities coming um, coming along. And again, we avoided the hype of all the of all the you know the you know the AI, artificial intelligence, all those type of stocks that have been hyped up. So we've definitely avoided all those stocks which were way overvalued. And overnight, literally, it's just um, that now that we're recording this, overnight those stocks have actually dropped quite substantially as well, literally overnight, uh, because they were overpriced and they were bound to come down. It's just eventual. And then on the other hand, though, it doesn't mean that everything is, you know, should be sold down and um, no longer investing. There are many what I call deep pockets of value where those sectors, industries have been shunned, i.e. the pharmaceutical sector, which is the likes of Pfizer, for example, which now post-COVID no one cares about for some reason. And those stocks have been sold down by 30%. So if you do a valuation on, say, even a, a stock like Pfizer, which everybody knows about, uh, it's it's undervalued. So we want to buy these companies because they are very sustainable, very profit, very profit heavy as well. Plenty of free cash flow. They will survive tough times for sure. I mean, their profit margins are about 30%. So every dollar they take in, they they make 30% profit. And then just not um, they're not just reliant on the one so-called COVID vaccine, so to speak. Of course, Pfizer's been around for a long time. Unlike the likes of, say, Moderna, which was very COVID heavy, so we've always avoided those type of stocks. And Pfizer's got a, a you know a library of different of different um, vaccines that that supposedly you know fix other problems as well. So that's why we like stocks like that. And at the same time, uh, I, I quickly looked at some of the stocks like uh, the farming equipment, you know, and and, you, and I could see I could see how in the short term how bullish a lot of farmers are because those stocks have have been driven up quite dramatically. The deers, the tractor supplies that, pro- that produce the machinery that support the farmers and their share prices have just been you know, risen to, to new highs. It's because their profit levels over the past couple of years has risen because they're, they're selling their products to farmers. And when you see that, I actually avoid those stocks. And I like those stocks, don't get me wrong, I want them, but I'm waiting for them to drop and eventually they will. So opportunity-wise, 
at the moment, not not very much. So that's hence why we hold so much cash. But eventually, those stocks that are overpriced will come back down. And all we are doing is taking nibbles at anything that has pretty much any bad news. So we actually love bad news. When that happens and a stock drops by 15 20%, that's when we get interested and we buy undervalued stocks. So one, it reduces the risk because we're buying something of value. But two, the return is going to be higher because when you buy something that's worth, you know, you're paying say an asset's worth a million and you are paying either a million or below, say half a million, and you've bought at the right price, eventually that will get back to where it should be valued at. And that's why the return will, far, will be far higher at lower risk as well. So yeah, so they're the opportunities I'm seeing. Uh, not, not a lot at the moment, but deep pockets of different sectors uh, that are showing up. And last week, for example, the advertising agencies uh, that we started to table, nib- take a nibble at, uh, the, the global advertising agencies, they, they've been sold down by 15 to 20%. And obviously due to recessionary fears, uh, the market's expecting you know people not spending as much in advertising. And we like that. So I've, I haven't invested in them for a while, but because it's now dropped 20%, I'm taking a small nibble to see how things go and start investing in those sectors as well. As always, Terry, great advice and so insightful. So to everyone listening, a couple of times a year, Terry offers to run an exclusive investment masterclass for our community. And so our next one of those is on Wednesday, the 23rd of August, so just a few weeks away. And it starts at 720 PM Australian Eastern Standard Time. There's a link to that in the written intro to this podcast. And I highly recommend, especially given what we're learning from Terry already and hearing about what's playing out for us and in the global economy, um, as you set down your plans to create wealth off farm and perhaps leverage your farm balance sheets, that masterclass is a wonderful place to start. So get um, yourself booked in for that if investing is a priority for you. And if you're looking now to strengthen your strategy for off-farm investing, Terry, thanks for putting that on again. Um, There's always so much insight in that and look forward to being online for that and to taking our community through that once again. Yeah, no worries. Um, And I always love running those events uh, for your community as well. So Terry, just in rounding out, um, Ted Lasso says to his team be the goldfish, which I think means forget about the game last week. Let's focus on what's in front of us. I think what you're saying is be the whale, be composed, be patient, be alert to you know, be observant. But you know, you've been swimming with whales over the last few weeks. Is that your advice for us? Or, or what would be your final comment on how we should be playing in the investment landscape at the moment? No, definitely. Running the business and and the investment landscape, exactly the same. Being patient and cautious and hence why we observe what's happening every quarter, these numbers and the criteria. So therefore, we're prepared and we don't want to get, you know, uh, be caught with our pants down. So definitely be the whale and observe because I, I even remember the whale, you know, flipping on his side and literally watching me. I could see the eyeball watching watching us on the boat. And then he got comfortable and then, you know, began to trust the, the environment. So be the whale. Perfect, Terry. Thank you so much for your time. Look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks on our um, investment masterclass and really appreciate the insights that you've shared. It just gives us so much confidence and control going into a different um, economic environment. Now, very welcome, Jeremy, and uh, always glad to be here and uh, share 
you know, share what I know to to your community and um, helping all the farmers get prepared of what's actually coming. Thanks, Terry. Take care, mate. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.